Welcome everybody to the Brew Theology Podcast. Tonight we are with Therese Howard and Benjamin Dunning from Denver Homeless Out Loud. Good to have you guys with us tonight. Thanks for having us. Hello. And Janelle and I have some, we have some announcements, some things coming up in the works. If you're listening right now, this is episode 88. We're 88 episodes in. We're going to take a little bit of a break during the summer because of rhythms. So our Denver Brew Theology community takes about five weeks off in July because we have the Wild Goose Festival Wild coming Goose. up. So go to wildgoosefestival.org, sign up. We have a promo code, 25% off, GOOSECAST18. That's all caps, GOOSECAST18. I also have some free tickets, so you can email me, ryan at <laughs> brewtheology.org. If you help us with the booth, that would be great. We'll have a booth. Janelle has her own talk on women of faith. Yep. And we will have a podcast and a demo that you can join and be a part of a little Brew Theology community goose style. That's fun. Yeah. And we also have other... So if you're a Denver person and you listen to the podcast, we do have things throughout the month of July. Don't worry. So even coming up, we're doing the Road to Edmond Film and Beer with Homebrew Christianity's Trip Fuller. That's... Yeah, that's coming up on Friday, June 29th. Is that right? Or is it June June 29th? So that's going to be at Belong Church down in Ogden in Denver. We are going to be at the Dead Sea Scrolls. You have to go to the meetup page. We're also going to be at a Rockies game. We're going to have a barbecue. And then I think there's one more thing. Oh, we're going to do another film on Tony Campolo and his son, Bart Campolo. Ooh. So, so July still got stuff, but we're, again, rhythms, taking a break from Thursday nights. And good news is we'll stuff some podcast releases because the Jersey Brew Theology community has Catherine Keller, I think like a two or three part episode. So you'll want to tune in for that. That is the Dr. Catherine Keller from Drew University. Miss Process herself. Anything else? Oh. Beer Camp. That's right. Tell us about Beer Camp. So in August, we'll be joining Homebrewed Christianity for Beer Camp in Asheville, North Carolina. And we would love for you to join us. Uh, we also will have a special day before it starts for Brew Theology, where you can come and kind of uh, just experience a day hanging out with us and kind of doing some of our own little theology work. And we'll talk about Brew Theology and how to get started as part of that. So we'd love to have you join us. That is in Asheville, North Carolina, August. August. It's in August. It's we in should August. know the dates that should be in front of us right now. I think it's August 12th through 15th. So it's that a, it, sounds yeah, about so right. we're going to fly in maybe on a Wednesday. It starts Thursday, goes through Saturday. So three days of craft nerddom with unlimited beer in the, the southeast capital, beer capital of the U.S. Uh-huh. And a lot of theologians. So it'll be a lot of fun. It's so fun. You'll love it. You should come okay. for sure. All right. So t- uh, tonight in this episode 88, we are going to be talking about homelessness and the free haircut. We were privileged and blessed to have Benjamin Dunning with us last week at Strange Craft Brewery, mm-hmm. and he talked to our community. So we're going to talk now to both co-founders, Therese and Benjamin, just about their stories, the background, the work that they're doing, the policy stuff. I know that both of you come to the table with different areas of expertise and experience here. So this will be a lot of fun. And before we dive into anything that you're doing with um, Denver Homeless Out Loud and some of the policies in the city and the legislation, which I'm sure we'll get to, I, I think it'd be great just for listeners to hear your backstory, uh, why you're doing this work, um, who you are, what makes you tick, and get out of bed in the morning and and um, do this, I think, meaningful and relevant work in our city. I got started in this work as, um, as a result of the uh, camping ban ordinance. Um, I was homeless and sleeping out on the street at the time, 
and had this uh, ministry idea that I was trying to uh, get off the ground. And a lot of my friends on the, on the street were saying, well, you're running around trying to talk to important people. Go down there to City Hall and find out what's going on. So I went down there and watched all the uh chaos that went on with uh, the public's strong reaction against this uh, ordinance that was that was put put up there and um, after the uh, uh, ordinance had passed a few months later some of the folks that I had met from um, various portions of the uh, activist and uh, advocacy community uh, said um, we want to do this um, we want to do this survey um, we want to go ask folks out on the street, how's this camping ban working? Do you feel safer? Is there more access to shelters, as was promised by our, by our legislators? Um, do you have more police contact or less police contact? And on and on and on. And so uh, uh, forming around that report and surveys where Denver Homeless Out Loud started. And that's how I got started. Hi, I'm Therese. And um, so... I um, do not come from homelessness myself, but um, a lot of the real drive um, that initially pushed me into working on some of this stuff um, was spending a lot of time on the streets living with other people who were homeless uh, during like the Occupy movement. Um, so that was a time um, where I think a lot of people were both uh, politically ignited and, and you know, socially ignited, but um, also uh, where a lot of people uh, housed and unhoused crossed paths and, um, and shared space in a way that um, the power was in the hands uh, a lot more of those who have experience living on the streets uh, than those that, that don't in terms of the power of knowledge and the power of, like, um, it being... Uh, somebody's space who you know who's who's used to living on the streets so there was a lot of uh you know powerful things good things that came out of that uh relationship and so learning um just a bit more about street life from that and then um and then having the camping ban ordinance get pushed through city council like ben was just referring to um was a big part of like that initial push for me and uh and then, you know, really kind of, I'm, I'm sort of a pretty, like, uh, uh, I have ideologies, sort of, or, like, principles and, and tend to do things driven off of different principles. So there's a couple of key principles that are behind that. One is the voice of directly affected peoples. And so one of the reasons that I um, felt so strongly about this is that I um, wanted to continue the work against the camping ban driven by the um, input and, and leadership and voice of people who are directly affected, which is why we went ahead and the first thing we did was do that street survey about the effect of the camping ban that Ben referred to. So that's, you know, a big, big sort of leading principle that, um, that initially, you know, was a push for me and that continues to always be a, a foundational um, drive. And then, um, and then also with that um, would be just a sense of responsibility for uh, the world and the the shit that goes on, and that you know when we have a responsibility to to follow through on that. And then also just um, 
you know, the, in terms of like continued from then and, and then onward, um, uh, just a, a re realization through personal relationship and experience um, of how horrendous the situation is in, in terms of like um, the way that our, our cities are responding to mass homelessness. So. Yes, yeah, so when it comes to both of your experiences, which are similar and yet unique, um, Benjamin, you had referred to at the pub that there are at least five, if not more, myths, misconceptions, stereotypes out there that the general public has about homeless people, uh, men and women, families, kids. I mean, we're talking about this is more than just the the person that we see on like the stock image on Google. And so as, as coming from like the, in, the inside of this, speaking to those from the outside of it, can you just uh, briefly go over um, those, just those five misconceptions, those five myths and talk about those a little bit more detail. I, I have them here too. And so you can just start riffing if you want. And the first one that you said is that, that the homeless people here in Denver are primarily hidden. So what is, what does that mean that they're hidden? Well, um, in order to sleep safely and not get interrupted at night, uh, homeless people will hide. Um, they don't want security officers coming by and rousing them up. Uh, if they go into a coffee shop, they don't want to be uh, sectioned out. So a lot of the homeless community tries to be invisible. Uh, a lot of times they get treated that way anyway, but it's a safety measure for a lot of folks and then also uh, uh, an embarrassment measure. Um, so... You know, most people don't want to be tagged as someone that can be isolated. So uh, the homeless community often um, uh, will find ways to um, to hide the fact that they're homeless, especially for folks that are that are in cars and doing a lot of couch surfing and um, and various other ways people try to manage themselves when they don't have a place to stay. And you were saying that's getting more difficult now to to stay hidden in, in the city of Denver. Uh, that's because of all the development. A lot of the places where people used to go hide now have these big, huge story buildings on on them. There's a lot more security guard, private security guards running around. Um, the um, Parks and Rec uh, patrols the parks even more strictly. Uh, one of the things that uh, happens to the homeless community is when they gather in a park for rest and find a place where they can have some community and rest and catch up with each other. Uh, a lot of times that park becomes fenced off and then turns into a dog park or winds up being um, um, for renovations and things. So, Yeah, so I, I think probably a lot of people out there who are you know, either they're willfully ignorant or it just, I mean, you could probably look at this from different angles, usually would say, well, people who are homeless typically are on, you know, street corners and they have these signs out and they're, it's the same old image. But what you're saying is most of these, most people like they have community and they don't really want to mess with the public. They're not trying to break into homes. And so it, it it's, it's hard for I don't know why, because we're so um, tribal. I'm going to uh, stop. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. It's not that the homeless community doesn't want to mess with the public. There's a fear there. Yeah. Um, in interacting with the general public, to, um, that there might be some uh, might be some consequences. Either it's shame or being moved along. Um, so yeah. So and, that, and I think, that's, I, I that's, think it's helpful. Right. It could, I mean, yeah. Most most people have they just have this idea in their mind. So again, like. Um, it's the fear goes the other way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's, that's good for people to hear. And then, so next that you talk about how most people in Denver, they actually don't have drug and alcohol related issues. Well, and yet people think that they do. It's about the same as it is in the house community. Um, but the thing is, is it's a much, 
more visible. Um, so, uh, and that's the thing. Uh, those that have drug and alcohol issues, you can see them in the house community. People close the doors and you don't know what's going on. But in the homeless community, anything that's going on, which is just a reflection of what our society looks like, is visible to everyone. Yeah. It's not like you can go to a refrigerator and put your beer up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, another thing you said uh, is that the homeless people have a much higher instance of mental illness, but it's not what people think. It's not schizophrenia or PTSD. It's depression. depression. Um, service providers will take drug and alcohol numbers and mental illness numbers. They'll combine them and then they'll report them together to give large percentages. Uh, but what they won't do is give you a breakdown. Um, now, folks that have uh, uh, mental health issues are often more highly um, vulnerable to becoming homeless. Um, but uh, one of the results for folks becoming homeless is depression. Um, and that's normal. It's not unusual. Um, it's not scary. Um, so, uh, but that number will get reported in with uh, other more serious mental illnesses. And, but when people hear the words homelessness and mental illness together, their brains go to uh, PTSD and schizophrenia. It's out there. Um, uh, but it's, um, but not to the degree that people would like to, um, um, like to scare themselves with. Well, and schizophrenia, I'm guessing, is a pretty low percentage of the population, period. Mm-hmm. I don't know the exact numbers, but we did um, have a gentleman in a church that we went to in Kansas City that would come periodically who was homeless and schizophrenic. But, like, I've never met anybody else. So I think it's interesting and, and probably plays on those fears that we give them that label when the percentage is so small of how many people it actually is. And also schizophrenia is not, it's not necessarily dangerous. If you, it's, it's this wave of being on medicine and being off medicine. And it's, it's not this like untreatable thing that can't be dealt with. And I think sometimes the the media gives us that perception. I mean, just to kind of go off of what Ben was saying with that, like this, there is people um, who are suffering from mental health issues like schizophrenia who are homeless, and those people are generally more visible. And so they're, you know, and also more, um, uh, a lot of people struggle to understand or to be willing to understand, you know, the, the issues or of what something with schizophrenia is coming from. And so there, you know, that massive fear and that massive right. like, you know, wall and all of that, you know, can come up around there. But, um, one, like that's a small proportion Two, it's more visible. And so that, you know, that's part of you know, what comes with that. But three, I will say like, I mean, there have like having mental health issues or drug or alcohol issues, those types of issues, do make it easier to fall into homelessness, but that's not the cause of homelessness, which right. I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, so, yeah. I think this next one here is is the one that, at least for me, is um, speaks more um, probably to my heart and also my head as well. And I think this is something that people need to hear. Uh, most people think, oh, most homeless people, they don't work. They're just lazy. And yet, 60% of the homeless community is working. That's what that was reported by um, uh, 
point in time study from the coalition a couple of years ago. Yep. But the problem Endeavor. 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 Yeah, and the problem with that, it would probably like any other major city is it. So, so what if you're working, you got to find housing. Yeah. And work, uh, getting work that's that, you know, pays the bills and gets you a house is hard to come by. It used to be if you were making minimum wage and you could only get part-time work, uh, you could find a place that you could afford to live. Not the case anymore. So yeah, if you're, if you're working a minimum wage in Denver, um, you have to, uh, in order to p- only pay a third of your income on rent, if you're going to rent the average apartment, which is $1,400 right now in Denver for a single bedroom apartment, average is $1,400. Um, so if you're going to rent an uh, average apartment in Denver, you're working minimum wage full time, or I mean, sorry, just working minimum wage. Um, I believe now these are these stats I should have looked back up to confirm. I always forget numbers, but I believe it's 80 hours a week or, or some such number um, that you'd have to work. I mean, it's, it's an impossible number um, of hours that you'd have to week in order to. Yeah. I think um, the yeah. this last stat I saw was that you need to make like 20, around $20 an hour to have that average apartment in Denver and minimum wage is not, that I think it's higher than that. I think it's like 22. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Does that even factor in all the other types of expenses that people have? Probably not. Well, the, yeah. so the way that they, they calculate that is that it's supposed to be one third of your income yep. on rent. Um, and then the other thirds are supposed to be for, you know, other expenses. Um, but there's nobody that's, you know, doing that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, get, even getting a cup of coffee these days, like, well, there goes that, that costs $3 now to go get that. It's, uh, yeah, living in places like Denver, and then you know we have people in uh, brew theology up in Jersey, and Central Jersey and Manhattan. Like that's I lived there for a while. That's crazy. All these major cities, it's getting harder and harder. And yet, those are the places where homeless people gather because that's where you find the resources. Uh, so, and then you know you had said also that the data that we collect on homelessness, it's it's c- incomplete because it's self-reported. Yes. Something that you said uh, also that I'm like, I, okay, we didn't talk about this in detail much last week, but you said often social activists are often just are often just as misinformed as anyone else on the homeless issue. So can you like just give examples of that? Because uh, those are the people who are the accomplices or the allies or the advocates, you know. Well, and you can do that with the church community as well. I mean, you have people who are who are well-meaning and who want to help, but um, these false narratives that are out there are pervasive out in the general public. And so, when people, um, um, you know, are are um, are wanting to engage and wanting wanting to help, they bring a lot of that um, um, a lot of that information. People who have been at these kinds of things longer um, um, learn the difference because they engage. Um, but a lot of times you'll run into people and they say, well, you know, I'm here to help the homeless. And so I'm going to start a drug and alcohol rehabilitation program versus let's build some housing or let's find a way to uh, get people safe places to stay. Uh, a lot of people with good intentions will come with that kind of, uh, with that kind of mentality. Yeah. So then let's talk, let's get more about what you guys do at D holes, what you call it, Denver homeless out loud. And thank God we don't live in Arvada. (laughs) (laughs) No a hole, just D holes around here. Uh, so this is your, your general mission statement. It says Denver homeless out loud 
works with and for people who are ex- who experience homelessness to help protect and advocate for dignity, rights, and choices for people experiencing homelessness. We commit our efforts toward goals affirmed and raised by homeless people within our organization and throughout the homeless community. We strive to add our strengths together to expose the root causes of homelessness and to create ways of living in which everyone has a safe place that they can call home. And as the co-founders and people who are highly engaged in Denver Homeless Out Loud, what does that look like on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis? And you've been doing this for how long now? Six and a half years or almost at seven years. What does that look like on a day-to-day basis? <laughs> this is um, when you can just go off on rabbit trails. Well, <laughs> um, well, um, I'll put it this way. Uh, about half of us who organize with Denver Homeless Out Loud are formerly homeless, and about half of what's left currently sleep out on the streets um, with a mixture of, uh, of what we call housies mixed in. So... It's pretty dynamic. Um, uh, there's there's oftentimes a lot of a lot of ebb and flow. Um, so we learn to uh, um, to work in the mess, uh, work with people when they're willing and 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 when they're stable. And uh, we often get folks coming in uh, that say, "I'm here to help," but I'm telling you how I'm going to help. And so some of what we do is say, like, no, wait a minute, we're here to get the voice of the homeless community out and get the, um, you know, and, and have you hear what the homeless community is saying are their needs are rather than, than, than what, what you're doing. Um, we used to meet in a city park. Uh, we used to meet at Civic Center Park outside. Uh, we did that for over a year. Um, then a local organization, um, offered a conference room one day a week for us to meet and organize a lot of what we do we do you know laptops and roller skate the internet is a wonderful thing for uh for for poor folks uh and then we started writing and receiving grants and rented a tiny little office space of our own in which to hold space and to uh to meet and to organize um we we've done a lot of surveys we do we do rallies. We run legislation. We have a publication. Um, so the the initial drive to um, get the homeless community out into the general public and to um, decriminalize homelessness um, and to you know expose root causes of homelessness and to address our our housing needs. You know some of the things that are in there in you know in our mission statement. Those things you know drive us and have continued to drive us um, all along, and you know have led to the different projects that we have going on. Um, so you know, kind of like Ben was just alluding to, um, we um, we have different working groups uh, that that take on things. So one of those is a paper called Get Loud that's by for and about people experiencing homelessness. Um, another of those is um, running state legislation uh, to protect people's rights in public space to survive. Um, So that is the Homeless Wealth Rights Campaign, more specifically the Right to Rest Act that we run at a state level. Um, I'm just curious too, like, I know you're you're specifically talking about Denver, but people from other, others, like major cities and states, are they battling these same issues with this, like the Right to Rest Act? Is that... um, 
yeah. in, 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 uh, something that's trying to be passed with another advocacy group in another city like yeah so we work statewide okay. and actually with m multiple states we are part of a, a collaborative of organizations um, that's called RAP Western Regional Advocacy Project and that's made up of organizations in California Oregon and Colorado okay um, and um, all three of our states are actually running the same um, legislation and have been working together on this campaign um, for about five years now um, and um, yeah so so it's a not only a statewide but it's a national crisis the the response to homelessness being that of criminalization um, and um, there's laws all across Colorado there's uh, over 371 we know of 371 laws in Colorado alone that criminalize acts of survival in public space. So um, the umbrella sorry. is the Right to Rest Act. If people want to look that up, they yes. can. Okay. Because yeah. I mean, people, I think, I mean, I would say I would probably be ignorant on what it would be called and how do I Google this. So if they want to get involved yeah. in their city and state. Yeah. yeah they, they, yes. But just to add one caveat to that, um, um, that work, we also now have have taken on another strategy in addition to the statewide strategy, which is a local ballot initiative. Um, and so that we're running, this will be the first year that we do the local ballot initiative and we're, we're calling that the right to survive. So it's a different um, tag name, um, but the same basic rights are protected and it's um, just for the city of Denver and it's a ballot initiative that all the people living in Denver who are hearing this right now can vote on. Tell us what those rights that we're trying to protect. Yeah, yeah, I was yes, interested yes. in that. So backing That's up then, to Noah, how much are you going to know? There's, there's a lot of things just in terms That's of a lot of, you said how um, many laws? Three, 300 and something? Uh, 371, 371. In, in Colorado. I'm, yeah. yeah, I'm thinking of the Torah right now and all the laws in the, in the Old Testament. Holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, okay, rights in the right to survive or the right to rest act. The rights named in there um, is the right to sleep, sit, lay down, the right to cover oneself, protect oneself from the elements in a non-obstructive manner, the right to sleep in one's vehicle, um, the right to share food, and the right to um, privacy of your property in public space. So basically the right to exist, the right to survive. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about um, that last one about the right to your privacy in a public space? Because I know that's been a huge issue here in Denver with them clearing out public spaces and taking away property. So we have a we have a lawsuit actually on this. Um, it's another thing we do. Um, yeah. So basically, um, the city thinks that homeless people are. Um, trash and their belongings are trash and that they can treat everybody like trash and throw everybody's stuff away and violate people's Fourth Amendment right um, and constitutional Fourth Amendment right. So they go through and do um, sweeps where they uh, come in with you know public works and um, police and other city employees and they take people's property and they throw it away. Um, so there's different tactics that they use to try to cover up the fact that they're throwing people's stuff away, um, like putting it in bins and saying that it's going to storage and saying that there's a process that people can retrieve it and all of this. Um, but 
none of that actually plays out in reality. Um, so bottom line is they're taking people's property and throwing it away and people are being displaced from um, their areas of rest. And uh, it's, it's cruel, it's inhumane, it's, it's destructive. And, and yeah, so we have, a, we have a federal lawsuit against the city of Denver um, for that violation of our Fourth Amendment right. And what does that do to someone when their stuff is removed like that? How, what are some of the impacts that has on their lives? hopelessness um i mean plus you know if there's gear that you need to to face the elements with i mean there's there's a there's a safety risk to to folks when you're when your uh, belongings are taken um and then there's a there's a sense of uh being ostracized you know and not just a sense of being ostracized, you an actual ostracized. act of being ostracized. Um, so just to caveat on that a little bit, um, for people that are familiar with the way that uh, the homeless population used to exist in public space in Denver, um, that has changed dramatically over the past few years through these sweeps because they have been literally pushing people out to the outskirts, out to areas, um, other cities, but pushing people away through taking their stuff. So the, so the, you know, the personal effect is, oh, the place that I used to be able to survive with, you know, blankets and gear that I need um, is no longer an option because the minute that you set that blanket down or that tent down, police show up and tell you, you need to leave. And so, you know, it's, 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 it's facing, uh, you know, they say, oh, we give them a choice, <laughs> the choice of either being arrested and having your stuff taken or um, moving on, moving somewhere else out of sight, out of mind. I'm just kind of curious, uh, what, are there different seasons of the year where you see police enforcing this more? Is it like, so Christmas, the Christmas season when more people are going down to Union Station? Uh, is it when the Broncos are, you know, are around and people are coming in from out of town? We see it with events like that. Um, and there's also a seasonal stuff. There's usually heavy sweeps in the spring to scatter folks. There's usually heavy sweeps in the fall to uh, scatter folks to, uh, to, to someplace else. Uh, and then also um, they'll time it for targeted events. One of the targeted events that they uh, sweep very heavily um, in front of is uh, opening day for the Rocky season. Since March of 2016, there's been a 500% increase in the enforcement of the camping ban. So these sweeps um, are escalating and continue to stay escalated at that level of, you know, very thousands of people that are that are contacted a year and forced to move through this. And that's just basically for, you know, the economy and capitalism. So then they think, oh, out of sight, out of mind. Well, then like, how ignorant is that? Because people go places. We don't just disappear. So, um, yeah, this this is heartbreaking. I I forgot what, um, what event it was. Was it the Olympics? Um, was it... In Vancouver. I forgot which, and they they gave um, a bunch of homeless people tickets to other other cities. <laughs> DNC here in Colorado, not too long ago, uh, they bought people uh, one way tickets out of town, put them on a bus. Yeah. So now you're somebody else's problem versus, which is strange because every the mayor of Albuquerque does not like the former mayor of Denver, Colorado, <laughs> right now. Yeah. 
And yet at the same time, like the city also knows like the, the best services are going to be in places like, like Denver, like LA, like Chicago. I mean, like this is where people have to go to get, to get help. Yeah. And yet at the same time, they don't want them there. Hmm. How, yeah, this is like, this is where my, my, I guess my, my well, deep, my deep seated theology comes in to say, well, you know, the city officials don't really, they don't like, they're not dealing with the, the theology of people. And I mean that like across the board and we could talk about lots of issues right now <laughs> that are, that are up in the air, um, but th- this is about the end of the day. It's about the bottom line in the economy, right? Mm-hmm. One of the, uh, one of the first steps, um, that businesses will do to gentrify uh, an industrial area is they will build a microbrewery. Uh, you go through, and then along with the microbrewery comes restaurants and then some other cool stuff. Murals. And yeah, and, then, uh, and then, then the housing comes later and people begin. But these are usually uh, industrial areas where the homeless used to be able to hide and um, and when that stuff gets built up, then people are highly visible. And then the folks that move in there into the, what they consider are these cool places, like, oh, where do all these people come from? Well, they used to sleep underneath where your apartment building was. You know, they used to sleep behind the restaurant that you like to go to or, or the ballpark or... Yeah, so I, I'm curious about that because I mean, here, we, here we are, and I'll, we'll just be open about this. This is like the elephant in the room. We go to breweries every week, craft breweries. The other communities do as well. And, and I know that probably some of these owners and managers probably have that mindset, oh, this is bad for business. Shoo, shoo, shoo. And yet I wonder if they're all like that. And this is, this is maybe my, my, going back to last week, we talked about the paradox of the, um, it, the irrelevant idealism. <laughs> That's me. The glass is always half full and you're the corrosive cynic. And so are there breweries and are there restaurants and are there, I mean, are there, are there business owners who say, you know, um, yeah, we're trying to make a buck, but we also care about people. Are you seeing that? I know that the, there's a specific brewery in town. I'm not going to mention it next to the tiny homes. How did they feel about that when that was going in over there? They've been fine. They've been fine. Yeah. I mean, they, they haven't been like uber supportive, but they haven't been problematic either. Yeah. Can can we come up with, I'm trying to like, are there any examples of businesses out there that are in these areas being gentrified that that say, let's let's at least try to partner. What what happens is the bids, uh, the, uh, the business organizations. So what'll happen is if you have individual business owners that are, that are interested in being supportive and it's usually the, the wildcats, what happens is they'll, uh, get together in large organizations like the Downtown Denver Business Partnership and other other kinds of organizations. And then these partnerships have big money folks pushing the whole business community. And so what happens is as small business owners usually wind up being quiet if they have a if they have any kind of aversion to that uh, at all because um, you know they don't want to be facing the wrath of the um, so so there's some bullying quote unquote, that goes, that goes on for, for, uh, for business owners that might, you know, be more worried about following their hearts, uh, in, in regards to, to what's going on in the neighborhood for fear of backlash of all the other business owners in the area. Bids are extremely powerful. There's a lot of, I think, a lack of 
understanding about how powerful they are, but business improvement districts are all over the nation. They're spreading, um, and they they have diff- there's different kinds, and you know some maybe better than worse. But in general, um, they tend to spend a significant portion of their budget, like fifty percent or more of their budget, on um, lobbying and and advocacy, advocacy quote unquote. Um, and they tend to spend a sp- significant uh, portion of the uh, the issues that they they lobby on uh, um, regarding anti-homeless stuff. So the camping ban, uh, the sit-lie law, the anti-panhandling stuff, all of that in Denver comes from bids, all of that across the nation very often is really driven by these bids that have a, a bunch of money. It's actually public money. We don't need to get into all this details about bids, but they, they are a very powerful um, tool that, you know, like Ben was referring to. Um, yeah. So if you're a small business owner that wants to be helpful and you have that around you, and you may have joined the bid thinking, oh, yeah, the business is all together, you know. Um, that, um, yeah. Speak to, so to your question of, of are there any, like, good businesses that, you know, have popped out or whatever. Um, I'm sure there are, there, there are probably much, many more that I'm not as aware of. Um, so um, Sexy Pizza is one that has actually partnered with us um, to put up lockers. I love Sexy Pizza. So, Woohoo! Yeah, so... That's that's the one that's actually come out and like partnered with um, us to say, hey, like we want to actually use our space to be um, inclusive of homeless people, and so we made lockers that can be accessible to um, people who are homeless to just come and get their stuff whenever they need it and put it up on the wall, um, the outside wall of Sexy Pizza. Um, and there's probably some others that I'm uh, forgetting. Now um, I feel but. better. I, I eat a sexy pizza at least once a week. So there we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, ben, you had mentioned lockers in your talk. Can you tell us like uh, why those are so important and helpful? Well, imagine carrying your house with you all day long, day in, day out. And if you set something behind, having the risk of it being confiscated either by the police or stolen. So if you don't have a house to lock your stuff, your, your, your uh, supplies with, and you don't want to break your back, you know, um, carrying survival gear for when the weather gets bad. Uh, a locker is a huge survival tool. Um, I mentioned one of the biggest resources that I used uh, from the service community was, um, was some storage uh, at St. Francis Center. Um, and it was a huge game saver for me because I could keep winter gear uh, stored over the summer without having to replace it if I found if I found good gear. Um, but it had limitations because that particular organization had a limited amount of time that you could access it. So lockers that are outside that people can access when the, when the need comes, just because they got a lockout and they go get stuff, is a huge. Um, um, is a huge asset and it doesn't cost a lot of money and we can have them spread out all over the city uh, if people would just be willing to support a little bit of space for uh, for people to be able to use a resource like that. Just to make a plug on that, um, if you own a business or a church or a uh, piece of land or whatever in, in Denver and you want to um, offer that up to put up lockers for people who need it, uh, contact us. Yeah. And, and one of the things to think about that a lot of times when people think like that, uh, they, they'll start to think too big, you know, they'll think, Oh, lockers, let's put 200 up in our church or outside our church. Think in terms of like 200 churches 
putting out four or five. Um, I mean, that is is a way in which communities can get, I mean, and then that way you don't um, wind up creating something bigger than it needs to be, and it becomes simple to, to negotiate. That's yeah, that's helpful. I mean, again, it's one of those things you you don't you don't think about it unless you're in that situation. So lockers as simple as that. 